Hello, welcome to an episode of Around the Corner. Today I am with Don Gibson, a film teacher and historian from New York, and we are going to talk about a couple of movies, uh, Bonnie and Clyde and Where Eagles Dare. Both of these movies we picked based on looking at movies from 1965 to 1968 in the action genre. So uh, we're going to start off by Don introducing Bonnie and Clyde. Thanks, Ben. Uh, yeah, Bonnie and Clyde is a, a really interesting film uh, for me um, for a couple of reasons. You know, one, it's a really entertaining film with uh, great action sequences and, you know, familiar names. So Warren Beatty's in it and Faye Dunaway and, um, uh, and so, and Gene, Gene Ackman as well. Uh, but it's also really interesting. It's, it's considered one of the new Hollywood films in that it was challenging the studio norms of the day. So not shot in studio, not just about entertaining people, although it was entertaining. It also had these aspects that were making us think about what is film and why do we watch, you know, and, and, and like Bonnie and Clyde are interesting characters because they're outlaws and they did bad things. They killed people. And yet we're thinking they're good in the, in the film. Um, and so it's interesting because they were at the time, Hollywood was actually not doing well at the box office. Um, some people thought television was, was getting you know, a lot of control back and people weren't going to the theater as much. Um, and so Hollywood was, it was considered a bit of a slowly turning into a, a dinosaur in a way. People were, you know, it was kind of repetitious studio productions. And this film was influenced by the European movements, primarily the French New Wave, Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard. They did films like Breathless and 400 Blows and you know, they're artsy films, but the, the surprising thing, they were very uh, popular at the time um, because of these challenging existential, interesting philosophical ideas. They were also, you know, uh, challenging because there was, uh, you know, they, they pushed the realm a little bit with uh, nudity and language. And so people thought that was kind of interesting. American films were uh, quite a ways away still from, you know, violating those codes. And this was influenced by that uh, movement um, um, and, and so it's, it, it is just an action film. Bonnie and Clyde, as I said, is a story of outlaws. Um, but they were, were looking kind of at the, uh, the mind space of, of Bonnie and Clyde and what kind of people they are. Well, can you tell me, Don, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the, the, the movie got started. What was, how, what was the origin of, of getting the movie filmed? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Warren Beatty at the time was like the big sex uh, symbol of the 60s, uh, you know, like Brad Pitt, George Clooney, well, these days, I guess we've got new people coming up. Um, most of the people I remember really well that recently. Um, so he was the big star and basically he, he was a star vehicle. Uh, so you put him in a movie and, and people would go see a Warren Beatty film. Uh, but he was, and he was really interested in making challenging films and he loved the French New Wave and he knew Francois Truffaut and he actually tried to get Truffaut, who was leader of this movement, the French New Wave, to direct the film and he was interested briefly but then he went on to do another film called Fahrenheit 451 which was a, a, a story by Ray Bradbury so he did that instead and so then um, uh, Beatty uh, took the project on himself um, and, uh, and he was and a producer he, right he was one of the producers he was a he was a primary producer uh, people would argue you know, he was actually more than a producer because the producer does all the, the background kind of, you know, hiring and, you know, the, 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 the business side of things. But, uh, 
he actually, you know, philosophically was, was very much involved in it as well. Uh, so the, the, the director was Arthur Penn, um, and he did other films later. The Missouri Breaks was one film. But, and, and he did direct this film, but some people, and he also did Little Big Man, a film with Dustin Hoffman in the early 70s. Um, but a lot of people think Dustin Hoffman was really the visionary uh, behind this uh, piece. I mean, Warren and, Beatty? Or? What did I say? Yeah, Warren Beatty. Yeah, yeah. you said Dustin Hoffman. But yeah, not Dustin. Dustin Hoffman was the star of uh, Little Big Man, that's why. Yeah. So, Which yeah. also was a film that had a very uh, different style to it as well. Yeah. It did, yeah. I think and Arthur, I, Penn, I, Arthur Penn probably complimented a lot of the vision of what Warren Beatty wanted in regards to having the courage to kind of make a picture like this in a, in a still you know, manufactured production studio uh, centered thinking process of the executives. So, you know, I, I think obviously, I don't know if this picture would have been made if it wasn't for Warren Beatty using his star power to kind of push it forward. I agree. Uh, Warren Beatty was definitely the person that, that made this film happen. That's what most people think. Um, and then when they made it, like, and it's interesting too, because he made it at Warner Brothers Studios and Warner Brothers historically was known to make gangster films. So yeah. in the thirties, each, each uh, studio had its, had its genre and, and everyone, I, if you wanted to see a Warner Brothers film, you're going to go see a gangster film. And they'd sort of gotten rid of that, that definition. They, they wanted to move on because then there's a point where people think, I don't want to go see Warner Brothers, they're gangster. And so it was a little bit, uh, Beatty had to convince Jack Warner, who was the, who, the, who ran the studio at the time. And he showed him the picture. And when they started, he was, I don't really know about this gangster thing, but they gave him the project because it was Warren Beatty. And then when they were watching it, um, there's a good story about uh, if Jack Warner got up to pee in the middle of the film, it was a bad sign because he was bored and he went to pee. And this film he went through four times. And then, you know, they're thinking it was a disaster. And Jack Warner was like, I don't even know what this thing is. Um, and so when they made it, they, they did it grudgingly. They, they released it basically as a B movie. They were thinking, well, there's a lot of shooting in it and Warren Beatty's in it, Faye Dunaway. And so it'll be, you know, these B movies were really popular at the time, which are basically just exploitation films. And they released it in the drive-ins and it did incredibly well. Um, people started talking about it, not just as an exploitation film, but as a film that had, you know, you know, moments that are, you know, re reflective of what it means to be a gangster. You know, Bonnie, uh, historically and in the film, writes a poem about what it means to be a gangster. Um, the film opens with a quite a beautiful sequence that goes on for like a minute, where Faye Dunaway, you know, quite tantalizingly is naked in, in her bedroom, sort of walking around and, and she's holding the bars of her brass bed and, and it looks like she's in prison. Kind of so like, a, like a trapped, uh, tiger or lion and king. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, just like wanting to, wanting to uh, get out, constantly looking out the window, looking at her image, you know. Yeah. And that was very European or French New Wave because there was really no purpose to the opening shots. And it was, you know, people would say, you know, I mean, Faye Dunaway is a beautiful woman and we're seeing her mostly naked. And so it's kind of, you know, for Americans at the time, you know, the, the censorship was pretty strong and that would have been quite shocking. And so it opens with scenes like that. And then also the scenes they have, um, you know, there's also the relationship between Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, which is really interesting because it's basically asexual. Um, they do their first bank robbery together. Then afterwards, they have this moment where we think they're going to engage in some sort of sexual intercourse. And then Warren Beatty just says, I don't want to do this. I'm not that kind of guy. 
Yeah, it was really weird. It was, it was, yeah. you know, he's kind of like, you know, I'm not, uh, it's just, it doesn't do it for me. I'm not, I choose not to, you know, he's, he's yeah. like, you know, he and goes, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not gay or anything, but, you know. Exactly. And for a Hollywood film, that's incredibly surprising. We would never expect to see that. We always expect the guy to be a man or macho, et cetera, and Faye Dunham is beautiful. And, and historically, there really, there's only, there's references to potentially a, a uh, Clyde in jail and maybe had an experience of being molested or and but you know his relationship with Bonnie there really is no evidence that there was there evidences that they were sexually active and they you know I guess traditionally we don't really know but there's the Warren Beatty and Arthur Penn took this idea quite far and they made like Faye Dunaway's character uh, Bonnie was very upset with this these the lack of interactions. Yeah, she she's definitely the aggressor in in the relationship in regards to this area. And you know that whole sequence after that first robbery, it it, it actually kind of complicates the characters in a way that you, as the viewer you're not really expecting this. You know, it's like almost like they flip the roles a little bit on the traditions, and and so you're starting to think, oh, this this film has something. There's something going on here that you're not seeing in a normal film. Yeah, I totally agree that that's a really interesting aspect about it is the is the how strong she is the female lead because uh, female leads generally you know they maybe have a couple of strong lines or they do a couple of good scenes but they're always second tier to the guy uh, and I they kind of go back and forth because you know Warren Beatty's uh, uh, Clyde is pretty strong too but on the sexual issue she's definitely the aggressor and she's definitely the you know the more the more powerful character. What did you think of her being cast into that role, Faye Dunaway? As a casting? Yeah, as, as you know, selecting Faye as, as, as yeah. Bond. Ah, I, th I think she's a really fascinating choice. I mean, later, uh, I guess it's about three, four years later, she was in Chinatown, Roman Polanski's Chinatown, opposite uh, Jack Nicholson. And I'd say these films really compare well for her. Once again, she is a... Uh, a powerful lead. Uh, Jack Nicholson's more of a traditional lead for sure. He's definitely a sexual aggressor in that film. But there, the, her, her, uh, I would say in a way, she's kind of like the 60s, early 70s Meryl Streep. She's a very strong character actor. She's not traditionally beautiful or I don't know, whatever, you know, the Hollywood blonde kind of thing. Uh, but she definitely has a very strong um, sense of character and very strong sense of portrayal of the character of, of, of Bonnie. She wasn't the first pick either, right? I mean, there was a whole process of, of uh, that. That actual character casting was was quite uh, the search was quite in depth, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, but and in the end, um, she was uh, she was an excellent selection. I mean, I think uh, you know the uh, other characters like Gene Hackman. He, he was he he was brought out. Uh, he's the brother of, of of Clyde in the film. And uh, this is one of his early roles as well. I think this, and also Gene Wilder was his very first role. So I think a lot of risks were taken on all roles except for Warren Beatty. Um, even, even CW is a very kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the actor's name, but he's a very, you know, kind of an odd looking fellow. And he's a very interesting character to have in an action, you know, gangster film. I think his name is Pollard. Yeah, yeah. and I, he, but he, I think it's the only film he's known for. Yeah, no, I've seen him in some quirky supporting roles, like in a Star Trek episode and some random yeah. things. You know, I I felt like uh, the 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 selection of the supporting characters. Uh, you know, um, Clyde's brother Gene Hackman hits a home run. I mean, he was so good. You could right away you're gonna see Gene as a a, a star in, in Hollywood. You know, he was just so 
you know, charismatic and just a very, a very good actor. The quality just immediately pops, you know. And then Pollard was this kind of weird, quirky little guy, you know. And then um, Gene Hackman's uh, wife, uh, who actually, I believe she, she won an Oscar for this, Stell Parsons. Um, she was very good in this as well. And, you know, interesting enough that she later on would play Roseanne Barr's mother in Roseanne, which yeah. really, you know, stuck with me the whole, the whole movie because it almost feels like the character just kind of grew into Roseanne Barr's mother. It's like the same style of yeah. annoying character because, I mean, we could both agree that by far she was the most annoying part of this movie and intentionally so, you know. Yeah, she's incredibly annoying. I mean, this, there's the sequences, especially where she, well, she argues a lot with Bonnie. Bonnie, of course, hates her because uh, she represents some sort of middle-class, you know, disaster. Stability. Uh, but all these action sequences, she's always screaming and she screams in the most uh, unpleasant, exhausting way that we, we just can't stand her. An interesting story is that the, the only person to survive, when the only living person, when this film was made, was her, um, and she was very upset with the, the, the portrayal of her, and she tried to stop the production, um, and they didn't do it. And she thought it was a very unfair portrayal, how, as you said, irritating that, that she was uh, portrayed. I mean, we, we just despise her, even though, you know, she's an innocent person kind of drawn into this thing, into these series of robberies that she didn't want to do in the first place. So what do you think about how the, 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 time, the time in the U.S. And, and how it impacted the storyline a little bit? What, what did you see that kind of connected with the current uh, uh, culture at that time in the, in the 60s? Do you mean how it's how we see it today, or how? Well, we no, connect? I, I mean the movie. Obviously, there were some instances I felt in the movie where the 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 the, the tension in the in the culture at the time in the '60s might have been influenced a little bit in how the movie played out and the storyline. Did you did you get a sense of that at all? Oh yeah, very much so, and that's why uh, the film did so surprisingly well because. Funnily enough, Hollywood didn't really understand how important the, um, the demographic of the, you know, basically the teenager up to the mid-20s, how key that is to successful film. They, they didn't really pay attention to them, and the drive-ins had just arrived. So any of this, the film has definitely a counterculture appeal to it of fighting the system. You know, it's Bonnie and Clyde against the world. And that feeling, of course, was going on in society with, uh, you know, the cultural revolution of the, you know, 67 flower power and, you know, the... The sexual revolution and these things, and so that that they they tapped into that uh, you know that uh, I guess zeitgeist of the moment that Hollywood didn't understand at all at the time. They didn't get that you got to tell stories about how people are living today. They don't want to see uh, giant spectacles like Cleopatra and you know paint your wagon that have nothing to do with how people feel today. And even though the the, the film is portraying. Um, you know, the, the Depression era, uh, which was 40 years, 35 years before, it was about being, you know, not being understood by society and expressing yourself and, and who she is and, and who we are. And that also goes back to what we're talking about, Fade Inouye's portrayal of uh, Bonnie. It was so strong and so powerful and she wanted to be who she was. And that was, you know, partly of the sexual revolution of women saying, you know, if I want to do whatever I want to do, then you have to, you, you have no say over me. I, you know, I felt, I felt too that there was a lot of um, messaging about the youth at that time. You know, the, the expectations coming out of the 50s and 60s was, you know, you, you have a role that we want you to fill. 
And, and that's the way, you know, we want you to kind of develop as an adult. And I, and I kind of feel like this movie was, uh, was very much connecting to the youth because they didn't want to, to necessarily fill this role that the, 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 their parents wanted them to fill. And so there was, there was a, a little bit of a rebellious sense in that, in that, you know, we're not, we're not you and, and we're going to go the way we want to go. And Bonnie and Clyde maybe spoke to them because they definitely chose a course that was not accepted at that time. And it was not the expectation of what they were supposed to, you know, grow into as young adults. And I think that, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, and then we look at some other movies, uh, you know, the graduate where we see that the, the young roles, they're, they're not, they're, they're not, they don't have a clear vision of what their future is going to be. And, and they're not necessarily, they feel the pressure of these parents and, and these older generations, but they're not necessarily responding that way. They want to go down the path that they want to go down. And I think Hollywood was starting to finally hear that message when they see the popularity and success of a, of a movie like Bonnie and Clyde, they start, you know, letting, the development of movies that don't have that strong visionary goal of the main character and letting them kind of kind of figure out the directions they want to go while the movie's in process, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's funny because Hollywood does tend to move kind of like, you know, a giant corporation like Ford or G at times because they always, you know, right now we're in the era of superhero film and they really, they understand it's a cash business and they're like this you know I keep making these films and people keep going and they'll just keep playing it out until it won't work anymore and uh, similarly films made by black filmmakers you know previously they've always thought oh we should do this because it's the right thing to do and you have to be socially conscious the stupidity is they're really popular films because there's an awful lot of first of all black people in the country but also people that often the cultural message that are it's being offered like you're saying here you know it's not they're saying a story about people that we know and are interested in. I mean, you'll look at rap and hip hop music. It's not, people don't like it because we want to be nice to a, a culture that's been downtrodden. It's really good. And the same thing here, you know, a lot of the black filmmakers coming up today, a lot of the films are really good because they just, they have a lot of stories to tell. And same thing with this film. It's, it's, it's a really interesting story that's challenging the way society is. And at the time, young people were challenging the way society was and they wanted to, a message that connected to them. It's, and, you know, it's, in, it's, in, really. Interestingly enough, you know, a movie like that actually has a much better chance of being made today than it did back then because the studios do not monopolize the, the system anymore. With, with streaming, there's so much need for content uh, because of all the streaming channels and uh, you know, there's a shortage of good quality content that people want to watch. And so, you know, I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot more experimentally and challenging uh, productions because of the availability of, of uh, streaming channels and, and productions that want to buy, you know, a lot of a, a larger range of, of, of uh, media because, you know, not everybody wants to just watch that superhero movie every year yeah. the next sequel to whatever yeah. right i mean people want to be challenged and there's a lot more intellectual depth that is being demanded yeah. because you can be more niche now uh, because it's, you know with the streaming channels it, it provides a lot more opportunity for viewing and and returning the costs well and especially now too with the pandemic uh i mean i don't know what the studios are going to do to figure out um releasing their films because they've always you know the, the studios have always been based on the first weekend 
weekend or two, three weeks. And of course that, that uh, paradigm doesn't exist right now with, with you know, so limited theaters that are available. So I'm curious to see what the next Bonnie and Clyde will be and how we'll move forward and you know, the industry might change in its vision. So uh, is there, are there some things that you want to talk about in specific scenes about the movie that really impacted you or you feel would be interesting to the listener? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's a, a number of really interesting scenes, pretty good car chases. The, the, the shootouts are very interesting. They use an awful lot of uh, squibs, which are the little blood capsules. And it, it was an innovation at the time. So there's an awful lot of blood. It's not as gory by today's standards, of course, but there's a lot of blood. There's a couple of shots where people get shot like right in the face, which is at the time very surprising. And I do show this film to my class and I have you know, students that are, you know, they've seen it all, they know it all. And they're, they're definitely surprised by a couple of the scenes. Uh, the, the most interesting scene, of course, is the death of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, it's you know, the last three or four minutes of the film. And I'm not giving anything away here because anyone knows I think everyone knows why I'm glad we're killed. Uh, but the way they're shot is quite graphic and it's excessive. There's, and the editing is, is uh, really quite remarkable in that, you know, in, in about 30 seconds or so, there's about a hundred shots. And so that means there's a shot like every third of a second. And the editing is so rapid. You really have to see the scene a couple of times over to, to really understand what happens. There's a lot of metaphorical stuff with birds flying and then editing back and forth between Bonnie and Clyde's face. And, you know, like, you know, as a film, in terms of film theory, it's a great film to analyze because you can write a lot, a lot about it. But just as a viewer, it's really quite a, and it's quite an experience. It's, it just go, it goes so quickly and then you're kind of left wondering what happened. And there's a couple of great final shots we see. Uh, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie's dead body through a bullet hole in the window of the car. And that's one of our last shots of the film. So it's a very powerful metaphorical, but you know, I guess you'd say entertaining and very thoughtful. It's certainly, uh, it's certainly not a happy ending. <laughs> not a happy ending. No. And in, in history, lots of people question why, why the, uh, the officers did this. It was, they were, they, they riddled their body, their, their bodies with, with bullets. Um, they could have just ambushed them and, and captured them. There was, a lot of people believe they would, didn't even have to shoot them. Um, but these, you know, Bonnie and Clyde actually ended up creating the Federal Bureau because they would just cross borders after they, state lines, after they robbed banks. And so if you're in Oklahoma and you're crossing to Texas, the Oklahoma guys wouldn't go to Texas. They figured this out. And because of one of the, the other people were doing it too, which is Bonnie and Clyde, they actually created the, you know, the Rangers and the Federal oh. Bureau, and I think they were a little bit vengeful. And, yeah, I uh, think, you know, I think there was definitely a, a you know, considering the amount, uh, you know, Bonnie and Clyde were not hesitant to shoot and kill law enforcement, and so, yeah. you know, they had racked up some, you know, they were, they were very dangerous people, and in, in, you know, the movie took the liberty of having uh, Clyde come out of the car, and, and, but in actuality, that ambush, they never made it out of the car. I mean, yeah. they, they, as soon as the car slowed down to a stop, um, the, the, all of those law enforcement men opened up and, um, yeah. and they never, they were never able to exit the car and yeah. that, you know, so in, in, in part of that was because they were considered so dangerous and, and well-armed that, you know, nobody wants to expose themselves. And that car actually, and the bodies, I mean, it's so morbid afterwards. The car I think is still somewhere in Texas. But yeah. I think it, it was, it was a, it, you know, the, for years, I think they, they actually toured it as a, you know, like oh, as a yeah. circus and, or, and or carnival exhibit, you know? If people in the depression would pay like 10 cents to see the car, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but the bodies too, my goodness, when they, when they had their open caskets, there was thousands of people that wanted to yeah. see yeah. their dead bodies. And it was really, well, they were, you know, they were considered folk heroes at the time. Oh, they were folk I heroes. Mean, yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, they were, they were, you know, hardened criminals that, uh, were, didn't hesitate to shoot to kill. And so, you know, I think the law enforcement, you know, they, they said they knew that and they didn't want to risk their lives unnecessarily by trying to capture them alive. Yeah. So, well, I think that's a very good um, analysis of Bonnie and Clyde. I think we looked at a lot of different areas and I think we should move on to uh, our next film, which is Where Eagles Dare. And I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'll start off by giving you a little introduction about that movie. Um, it, it is a uh, more of a, a traditional studio movie. It was uh, filmed mostly, met, much of it was filmed on location in some uh, castles in uh, Bavaria and uh, Austria as well. And the, uh, the film came out, in, I believe, in 1968. Uh, it stars Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. And interestingly enough, um, the film was actually, the origin of the film is... Uh, Richard Burton's stepson had this vision of putting Richard Burton in, in a, just a traditional war movie where he's kind of the, the hero of the war movie. And, and that drove the, the uh, connection with the uh, author of the book and the, and the screen uh, play that ended up uh, being the basis of this film. And um, the name of the uh, author was Alistair, is it Alistair McLean? Is that right? Alistair McLean, I love, when I was a teenager, I loved his books. Uh, always the great spy films and always a double agent somewhere. He did Ice Station Zebra, um, Where Eagles Dare. Oh, there's a whole bunch. And they were, I just, they're, and they're just page turners. You know, you read them in a weekend, you do nothing else. Right. And so, you know, he was, he was brought on and that book was written very quickly and the screenplay was written shortly after that. So we're talking like a six week turnaround on producing the screenplays and and basically the storyline of the movie is uh you know a, a world war ii general from england is shot down in his plane on a way to a meeting with the russians the soviets in greece to to start uh the negotiations negotiations to open up another front against hitler and and the nazis and his plane is shot down and the nazis capture this general and then uh, the British uh, decide that they're going to put together a, a, a rescue team of, you know, special operations forces uh, that will go into this uh, area and uh, infiltrate the castle and rescue this general. So that's the, the obvious, you know, scenario. But then we find out throughout the movie that, in fact, this is, a, this is all actually a, a setup of the British to... Um, uh, discover all the spies that they have in the, in, uh, the Germans have in the uh, British military and in, um, in England. And, you know, Clint Eastwood, who is one of the members of the special forces team was, was brought in as the American expert. He's kind of like the American um, special forces killing machine, you know, and, you know, it's a typical Clint Eastwood role that we'll, that we see a lot. And, and he has, you know, he obviously he has perfected this role at this point. And the interesting thing for Clint Eastwood actually on this movie was he was a little hesitant 
because Richard Burton got the top billing on the, and he was the the number two guy. And so, you know, there were his, his uh, team of people, they, they, they were a little hesitant, but they thought, you know what, let's try this out and see what happens. And, and you would think, you know, with these type of conflicts, there would be, you know, I want more lines. How many lines do I have? Or how many lines does he have? You know, but actually Clint Eastwood went the other way with this. He, when he reviewed the script, he said, no, no, my character has too many lines. This isn't, this yeah. isn't who I am, you know? And so he actually told them to take some of the lines out because he'd rather just go around killing people and blowing things up and not have to talk about it. Yeah, well, that's definitely his brand. I mean, his brand is Dirty Harry and, you know, the, the man with no name from the, 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 the Few Dollars More series. It's just looking, looking over people and having a gun and having a pithy line at the end of, you know, a mass killing of some kind. Yeah, he but to have a lot of dialogue with anybody. Yeah, he definitely perfected the strong, silent type. You know, he's strong and silent for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so the so the characters uh, they get on the plane. They go to um, uh, the team goes to uh, Germany and they parrot parrot uh, drop parrot whatever you call it paratroop paratroopers. Um, so they parachute out of the airplane, the team, and then as the last teammate. Remember, uh, uh, we see a little twist because out of the cockpit or some closet or something, right? This beautiful blonde woman come, appears, and and they tell her, "Okay, you ready?" And she jumps out, and they don't know about her. Yeah. So it's kind of like a little twist in the. In yeah, the I would say the best thing about this this film is the two things. First of all, the opening sequence of the plane is a white plane that's a camouflage plane flying yeah. to the mountains. It matches the mountains. It's got the Nazi insignia on it. And it's this great opening three minute shot of the plane flying through the mountains, which is, you know, a classic adventure of like, thing, you know, it's kind of like a mission possible earlier. Something's going to happen. It's, it's a beautiful shot somewhere in the mountain. And then, of course, the intrigue, you're thinking, oh, this is just a typical, you know, war movie, going to kill a bunch of Nazis. And then they all jump out. And then this closet opens, this woman gets out. And you're like, who's that? And then she jumps out. And of course, the rest of the film, we're left guessing the entire time. Oh yeah, there, it, you know, right away once the the special team forces land in the in the snowy meadows, you know, they find one of the bodies of the of the team members and he's dead. But then they find out that actually he was killed. It wasn't an accident. And then you know we start losing team members as the operations happen. And then we start wondering, you know, what what else is going on there? There's obviously some kind of second. Uh, or third plot line happening here, and as they infiltrate the castle and and we and they you know they become um, uh, more complications, and then we find out eventually about the middle of the movie. And by the way, this movie is uh, incredibly complicated. In in and the shot, the shooting schedule was just crazy. I believe uh, my in my notes, I see that they had uh, fourteen hundred edits in the in the movie which means that they were they were editing about the average shot length was about six seconds so there and you know with the action sequences you know and so much of it was shot on location that that's an incredibly complicated shooting schedule and for the time it's as well because now i think we see films that are, are similar like that if you if you go to an avengers film i couldn't even tell you how many shots they have but it's digital and this yeah. is actually a physical film so it's much more expensive and to edit all the physical film is a really complicated thing opposed to having, you know, a computer and then, you know, going through. Now there's a whole system to doing Avengers. Yeah. Whereas here, uh, the editor would have been a really exhausting uh, driving oh, experience. I can't, I can't imagine with all the different camera angles and and, and the amount of uh, stunts in this movie is incredible. I mean, they, they, 
because there's no, there's no, like you said, there's no computer digitalization here. This is all being filmed with real yeah. stunts. And, and in fact, in, in a couple of the explosions, the director was actually seriously injured during yeah. the movie. He was burned very, very oh. badly. I did one of one scene when there, one, a guy's thrown off the cable car. They really use a green screen. It's a little bit, it's like, okay, this is the 60s. It's not no, yeah, as, yeah, quite yeah. as convincing as you might expect. But that, I'd say that's the only moment. There's maybe a couple little bits, but that's the only scene where you're like, okay, that's not so believable. Otherwise, a lot of the action sequences are believable because they, they were actually running around and a lot of stunt, stuntmen doing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, one of the, the, the jokes about the film was uh, Clint Eastwood actually, he actually called it where doubles dare because stunt doubles were getting more screen time than the actual actors because the amount of stunts and, and action in the movie. Yeah. And so and they, he, was, he was kind of irritated about that, wasn't he? He wanted to do more stunts and they kept pulling him off. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, as insurance companies were becoming more powerful in the film industry, you know, he wasn't able to make those choices. He did, I think he did do some of his own stunts, but for a lot of it, you know, uh, he, he, he had a, you know, his stunt double was uh, in the shots. And the, the other interesting thing is there are some scenes where, you know, uh, Richard Burton had no problem with his stunt double doing as much. In fact, he probably was put, you know, you can do this, you can do this scene as well. You could do this scene he, as well. He probably wasn't even there half the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly there are some great stories about him and he was, uh, he was hard, hard partying at this point in his life. You know, some people were saying he was drinking uh, multiple bottles of, of alcohol a day. And, you know, he had some, some friends coming over to visit the set uh, some very famous stars. I don't remember. Do you remember some of their names? Uh, Peter O'Toole was one, and uh, another another well-known. Harris, maybe I don't know. Yeah, um, they, they were they were famous acting buddies. Peter O'Toole was one. Yeah, and they were running hard. So he would be he would be missing for a couple of days on these binges, and uh, you know, and and you can see in the movie there are some scenes where you think, oh man, he he's not looking too good. Yeah. Besides the problems of of being. Behind enemy lines in a castle, trying to kill everybody, but he just looked like you know he had a bad morning or or something, you know. And so there were definitely uh, you know some some scenes where maybe he's not he's just kind of telephoning it in a little bit, and you know you can see that. Uh, there's a scene where they're climbing up a castle wall, and and uh, Richard Harris looks like he's just a, a monkey climbing Richard up the Burton. wall. I'm sorry, Richard Burton. He's and actually he's, Richard Harris is one of his drinking buddies. So that's yeah, yeah, Richard Harris was one of his drinking. Yeah, and so now. Burton just looks like he's climbing up that wall like a monkey. Uh, and then you see Clint Eastwood climbing up the wall and he's like struggling because he actually climbed up the rope in the wall. But Richard Burton had a crane that actually lifted him up that was camouflaged. So it looked much easier for him to do. Yeah, that's the way to do it. That's the way yeah. I would do well, it. You know, if, you know, if, if uh, you know, why put it in that, that kind of effort if you have the technology to make it look like they're putting in that kind of effort? Why right? not do it? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So in the end, the movie, uh, you know, it turns out there's so many plot twists and that they, they end up being successful, capturing all of the uh, information that they wanted about the, uh, uh, the spies in England. And, you know, you see a lot of uh, complications because Clint Eastwood, you know, he's the trusted outsider, but he's even deceived at, at certain points where he's just following along as, as you know, as a loyal um, team member to Richard Burton, but there are some scenes where he feels like he doesn't know what's happening and he's a step behind as well. And that goes throughout all the movie, all the way to the very last scene where you find out that the, 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 the senior officer who was um, 
in charge of putting together the team turns out to be uh, one of the spies and uh, and ends up given taken he's given the option of taking his own life or going to trial and he just jumps out of the airplane. Hey, and, that would uh, be a spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh well, I think we pretty much you know the spoiler <laughs> alerts for both the movies yeah. are, are are well. You, you know, if you haven't seen these movies, um, then you know you definitely uh, are going to be disappointed with all the information we just gave you. Sorry. Well, that's one of my that's one of my favorite film moments of the film is they say, "What are you going to are you going to give me any options here?" Because they they figured out he's the Nazi and now he's going to be taken back to England to be tried. It's like, well, there's an option, and then. <laughs> Then the camera pans away from him with pan, and then we just see the open door on the airplane. I no, just, he opens the door. He actually, you know, well, he, he opens it. But yeah, then he then walks down. Know. He walks down the plank, like you know, like on a ship. You know, he was walking yep. down the plank. Done. And yep. He opens the. It was so British. It was so British. How they British. ended the, yeah. You know, oh, I'll just go ahead and take my own life so I don't embarrass the country and the, and my family. But I would say this film is actually kind of similar to Bonnie and Clyde in in the in the, in the sequence before that. There's a long sort of uh, they're on a bus and they're being chased. From the castle. Oh yeah, the yeah, yeah. And there's this really long sequence of of blowing a bridge up and, and being chased and, and shooting back and forth with people getting shot. And that's actually very similar to how Bonnie and Clyde were shot. There's all these sequences where they're a getaway car and police yeah, yeah. and then shootouts they have in the police in a motel. And these sh these shootouts are I, I, they're very similar in terms of production value, even though they're such different films in, in tone. So yeah, I think that there's a you know kind of the homage to to the old you know the, the gangster car chase and, and things of that nature definitely they yeah. you know the bonnie especially with bonnie and clyde because it just brings you back to that time and the old cars driving shooting out of the back of the windows or the front of the windows yeah. and and very much the classic gangster kind of car chase yeah uh, cops and robbers kind of thing and you know with the with with eagles dares i mean you where eagle dares where eagles dare you see that same kind of classic world war ii uh, you know, escape and, and get through all the checkpoints and, and the, the different and crossing the bridge and then blowing up the bridge, you know, all the classic, yeah. you know, World War II or, or just any war movie where, you know, yeah. you're going through those, those um, anxiety ridden chases and are they going to make it? And, you know, yeah. is, is well, this going to be successful? There's a great moment when they're, they're undercover still and they're in the tavern and then the Nazis come in and said, okay, we figured out there's spies here basically. And so Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton look at each other and say, what do you want to do? And they say, oh, well, it's probably easier if we deal with it outside than in here. So they just turn themselves in. And then, you know, then they're in a car and then they, you know, overpower their, their guards, et cetera. But it's, it's just the way they cope with it is like, okay, well, we'll get, we have a better chance out there. I'm like, all right, I guess, I guess. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. We'll just go ahead and turn ourselves in and then we'll break out later. Yeah, we'll break out later. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, you know, the, the, it was a simpler, it, it just felt like a simpler time the way they made this movie in, in the classic kind of World War uh, storylines and things of that nature. But then they also put in a lot of those little twists that made it just a little bit more interesting. And when I was a kid and watching this movie, I just remembered just being just wowed by it, watching it with my, my cousins in the den and my uncle was asleep on the couch you know, because he passed out and we were just trying to be quiet while we're watching it, but it was always an exciting, he loved watching these films as well. Um, and so, you know, it just brought back that childhood memory of, of, of you know, watching yeah, movies yeah. like this. And, but then, you know, when I watched it this time, I was like, oh my goodness, they could probably have chopped off 30 minutes from this movie easily. Because <laughs> it just, 
the depth of, of some of the things that they yeah. go through in these scenes, you're just like, okay, you don't have to show me that shot again from this angle. I, I get what's happening. It just, they must have got paid by the foot for film because it was just so long. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Yeah. Since they had all these great shots, they decided we're just going to show them all because everyone's going to come see it anyway because we have such star power. And Alistair McCrane wrote it, who was very popular at the time. And they figured, you know, no one's going to not come because it's long. And they were right. It was very successful at the time. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, even today, there's some pop culture uh, connections to it. You know, that, that, uh, that broadsword calling Danny boy, you know, that's, that's something that we've seen in, uh, you know, I believe there's a Iron Maiden uses that as an opening to some of their songs. And, and there's definitely a lot of pop um, uh, influence based on, you know, Clint Eastwood, this was the number one movie in regards to people he killed in any movie that he was ever in. So he killed more people as a character in a movie in this film than in any of the other films that he ever shot, which is, you know, considering the amount of, people he's killed in all the movies he's been in. That, that's pretty impressive that this is the movie. Where yeah, well, he was Dirty Harry, and Dirty Harry was yeah. known for killing people, so. Definitely. Yeah, and then Unforgiven, I mean, he, he went through Unforgiven. a few people. Yeah. A few Although seasons. he wasn't so keen on killing people in Unforgiven. Yeah, maybe. yeah, in his younger days, maybe. He got pretty yeah. mad at the end of the movie, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, they interviewed some people about the, you know, the history of this film, and Steven Spielberg even said that this was one of his favorite war movies as well, and he yeah. actually, ended his little interview by quoting uh, the broadsword calling Danny Boy, because that was such an impactful um, yeah. part of the movie in regards to, you know, the, the pop iconic. Uh, well, and there's, there's great scenes in it, the very idea that they have a cable car going from the town up to the castle, and they're gonna do these fight sequences on a cable car. You know, for the time, this is so exciting. You know, it's like, oh, the cable car, we know that something's gonna happen, and they use it like three or four times. And, you know, in the end, the cable car is blown up, and. There's so many great fight sequences. Yeah. The tension's great. You're fighting on top of a cable car, and you know someone's going to fall off. So, you know, you well can done. see the you can see the connection to some of the James Bonds movies. One hundred percent. It's very much a lot involved. of that. A lot of that style of you know. I think I think they even had some cable car stuff in one of the James Bond movies as well. But you know, they were trying to find interesting ways to to have action sequences and, and putting them into the movies. Exactly. Definitely, you know, very much connected to kind of the. Ian Fleming, James Bond style movies. Yeah. So anyway, I thought it was a good movie. Are there some, you know, we talked a little bit, you've introduced some comparisons, but are there some things yeah. in this movie and in Bonnie and Clyde that you see as being similar or different? Well, I mean, I think they're pretty different in many ways, but I mean, the, definitely the action sequences, I think you can draw connections. And then also both have quite strong female leads. Um, in Where Eagles Dare, there's two uh, female spies uh, that, you know, do what they're supposed to do. They're secondary, but they're definitely strong. They're not, there's a Nazi, there's an evil SS officer that's gonna try to kill one of them. And she's fearless all through that. So they're very strong. They're still quite secondary. They're not really one of the main people. Um, and they're, and I definitely, their, their sexuality is, is much more. Sexuality is the primary. But yeah. interesting enough, the same with Bonnie and Clyde. The first time we see Bonnie, she's naked and she's right. sexualized. And she sexualized the film. We see her in, you know, provocative clothing and, and postures. But at the same time, she's a very strong character, and she really, she is portrayed as someone that kept pushing. Um, you know, who cares? Let's, you know, when there's a federal agent that's about to capture them, and then they they turn the tables and they capture him instead. Uh, she's the one that really wants to humiliate him, and she's very cruel in it. And it's all her ideas. So the female characterizations would probably be the most uh, 
there's interesting comparisons, but definitely. Yeah. The, the well, it's, it's definitely that she's a main character too, and the depth that they put into that character. I mean, one of the disturbing scenes to me about her was uh, after they have uh, the, the big bank robbery where CW po is driving, and then they go to the movies to kind of chill out, and uh, CW and, and Clyde are just kind of dealing with their PTSD from, from the robbery, and, and the movie's playing in the background, and she's, she's actually watching the movie and getting annoyed that they're talking out their feelings about the whole thing and what happened, and, and they're trembling and still kind of dealing yeah, with it. Right. Like, I'm trying to watch the movie, and you can just yeah. see that, wow, she's, she's cold-blooded, yeah. cold like, <laughs> no problem with what happened. She, she's passed it, and now she's watching this movie. I totally agree. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, the the transition of the difference in these movies in regards to the studio system at the time, because I think when I look at wh where Eagle's there, I'm looking at the, you know, the, the classic studio picture uh, in you the are. model that they wanted. And, and Bonnie and Clyde, we're seeing an emergence of this new style of American film that's greatly influenced by you know what's happening in Europe, but it's it's much more groundbreaking and experimental, and so you're kind of seeing the the end of one system and the beginning of another between these two. Movies. I agree. I mean, one we have Bonnie and Clyde. We have a sort of an existential questioning of why we are who we are, and in lots of you know good you know lots of great dialogue and questions, and you know they're part of the film. It's and they're action oriented about what they're going to do next and how are they going to get caught, but they're definitely questioning you know. A lot of things just about who we are and in where eagles dare it's like nazis are bad and english are good and let's kill the nazis and we all agree on that and yeah there's a clear mission and purpose in where eagles dare and bonnie and clyde it's just kind of we're living for now and we'll see what happens and it yeah. turns out not so well <laughs> yeah, and of course the big difference is, is our heroes are killed in the end of bonnie and clyde and, and they survive of course in where eagles dare yeah, and you know, the and the heroes are flipped. You know, the bad guys are the good guys, and the good guys are the bad guys. You know. Yeah. So overall, do you have any final uh, points you'd like to make about these two films? I, well, I think they're uh, two great films. I think you're right. There's, there's, you know, they're very different in tone. And and Bonnie and Clyde's is a shorter film. I think it's like uh, like an hour and 40, 50 minutes. So it's much more compact. And I think you might even be left thinking. And the ending definitely is very sudden. Um, so, and, and Where It Was Dare is a, is a film that uh, could be trimmed in parts, but it's still great. They're both really enjoyable films that um, uh, definitely evoke the, the time they were made. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's some great co comparisons, but there's also some real strong contrasts in how we're seeing the film industry evolve in the 60s. And in, yep. in regarding that, even, you know, one film that we see as kind of the oldest was actually made after the, the Bonnie and Clyde. So where Eagles Dare was actually filmed a little bit later, not, I mean, within a, within a year or so, but we're seeing yep. that, that uh, influence of this new style of filmmaking that, you know, as we move into, into the later part of the 60s and early 70s is going to become a big bank uh, funding of, of the studio system. They're going to start making money off this style of movies and they're going to be a lot more supportive. So yeah. it's an interesting, I, I agree, it's an interesting uh, comparison. And I think these are both great films to, to watch if you like action movies. And, you know, this, this timeline in, in the late 60s, they still hold up, I think, as good films that you can sit down and enjoy. Oh, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Don, for uh, coming you, on. And I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen and stay tuned for our next Around the Corner.